Just a heads up that this podcast contains themes of family violence, which may be triggering. If you're listening in Tasmania where this podcast is made and you need support now, you can contact the free Family Violence Counselling and Support Service on 1800 608 122. Or you can call the 24-hour National Support Service on 1-800-RESPECT. If you're in an emergency, please contact triple zero. This podcast also contains some legal information which is not intended to be legal advice. You will find a list of legal services that you can contact for individual advice in the show notes. I only had two people in the space of the 17 plus years I was abused question my explanation of bruises and one who, having been abused, herself recognised when another woman was being abused. The bruises. This is what we think we'd notice, isn't it? What we'd look out for or recognise as family violence. But... Would you ask about them? Or would you be thinking, should I say anything? What if I'm wrong? What if she doesn't want to talk about it or thinks I'm interfering? Or he couldn't do that, could he? Hey, it's Penny Terry here. And before I created this series about taking bystander action to family violence, I didn't think I'd witnessed it. But after seven episodes of talking about the different types of abuse that aren't physical, I now realise that, of course, I had. I just didn't know what I was seeing. And in this episode, we'll learn that there is a lot about the physical abuse that we don't see either. Now, one woman said to me, I was being belted from, you know, one end of the house to other and and in the street and the neighbours saw and heard and all I could think of is, why doesn't someone help me? But the the crux of it all for her was, am I not worth anything? And I said, so what would have been helpful to you? She said, if someone had just come and said, stop, I'm calling the police, stop it. Yep, it can be that easy. But if we go right back to episode one, when Torna Pittman, whose voice you just heard, explained bystander behaviour, we learned that most of us won't say stop. If you haven't listened to that episode, go back, listen to them all. And if you have, would you say stop now? I guess it's like everything. When we learn a bit more about it, we feel more confident to take action. In this episode, we're going to learn more about the physical abuse and what it can look like in family violence situations. And as another warning, stop is a word that came to mind for me more than a few times as I listened. Physical abuse is, there's a whole range of things, Penny. So hitting, slapping, kicking, punching, dragging, um, grabbing, like pinching. Um, And then the thing that I think we're also going to talk about today is non-fatal strangulation. So putting hands around someone's throat, but not... um, Killing them. Not killing them. Right. That is a form of physical abuse. So when I'm looking at non-fatal strangulation, if someone comes in to sit down and talk to me and they reveal that they have been choked or strangled as part of the physical violence, that causes huge warning bells to go off in my head. 
Um, the reason for that is that it is a sign of escalation of violence and it also dramatically increases the risk that that woman will be later killed um, as a result of the violence that she's experiencing. At the moment, it is not covered by separate legislation, um, but it is a form of assault. And every other state of Australia, except for the Northern Territory, has a non-fatal strangulation uh, offence. Why the hesitation here in Tasmania, do you think? The hesitation here in Tasmania seems to be that the existing law uh, is sufficient and that it can be used, uh, the assault provision can be used in this way. So we're going to do some research to further drill into whether that's been the case or not. Is all I'm hearing that when you try to strangle someone, you're creating the fear that you're trying to kill them? Whereas if you're, if you're punching someone or you're kicking someone or you're dragging someone, it might be a, a different sort of fear? It is a different type of fear um, and the intention might be to control without actually leaving a mark on the person. You know, there's books written by people with lived experience around this that have documented, you know, the fear of being strangled and thinking that this is the end only to be let go of at the, you know, while they're having what they think is their final grasp of air. I think this is where we all want to hit that stop button. There is no mucking around in this episode, as you've worked out. You're hearing from the CEO of the Women's Legal Service Tasmania, Yvette Seetel, and the Principal Solicitor, Elise Whitmore. We're creating this podcast for their service, which has two specialised family violence units, non-fatal strangulation. Even the phrase is hard to say, let alone talk about, with your friends, your family or your lawyer. So they don't generally sit down in front of me and reveal that. It will come up as part of the conversation that we have as a whole and it might be that they're talking about something else when they mention it. Um, It's usually a point in the conversation with them where I will stop and ask a few more questions and have a discussion with them about the seriousness of what's occurring to them and the risks that they are at. If we talk about physical abuse as a whole... It feels like it might be more obvious to women that that is is abuse, that is a form of family violence. I mean, am I not overstepping the mark there? I think historically we have seen physical abuse as the only form of family violence and I'm really pleased that that is changing, Um, but it... It generally is one of the serious forms of family violence. It makes it easy to identify uh, when someone comes in and says, my partner slaps me or punches me or has put his hands around my throat. Um, it's, It's very easy to identify that as abuse. But it generally isn't the only form that is going on. And when you have those discussions with women, they will reveal other forms of abuse that have been occurring alongside of that. Now, is this it? The bit that maybe many of us have struggled to understand, meaning we do step over the mark. Even if other people can see signs of physical abuse, when someone is experiencing multiple types of abuse, they may not see it in the same way. Now, that's a bit to get your head around. So let's hear it put differently. Let's hear it from Deborah Thompson, who was in an abusive relationship for more than 17 years. It's, it's really hard to explain. Um, 
said no matter what he did, holding a gun to my head in front of the children, threatening me with an axe, um, strangling me multiple times, trying to suffocate me, the coercive control has had such an effect that I blame myself for all of this violence, thinking who I was and how I behaved as valid reasons for his violent behaviour. And I think at this point we need to understand the function of coercive control in a relationship. This control serves the purpose of perpetrators. It's a useful and vital part of the abusive relationship in that it makes the victim pliable, open to suggestion, and creates a mental state of mind that suits the abuse purposes. And this is what happened to me. Um, at the time, after abuse, um, particularly violent abuse, I'd feel utter contempt for myself because I accepted that abuse but also because the violence didn't compel me to leave when it should have. And this one abuses coercive control does um, to a victim. For me, it convinced me that I had um, legitimate reasons to stay irrespective of the abuse that I received. And any outsider, if they knew the situation, they had to understand just how dangerous that capacity I had to self-deception was, was really a causal factor in my decision to stay. And um, this was imperative that outside professional help is sought to clarify what's really happening between the persecutor and the victim because the victim and the persecutor both normalise abusive behaviour. They accept the control as an inevitable part of the family dynamic. Are you standing there in Deb's shoes where this sort of abuse becomes normal family behaviour? Let's walk in some other shoes. The shoes of someone who talks with many, many people who have been physically abused by their intimate partners. Family violence researcher and counsellor, Torna Pittman. It's very confusing for women. They will often have a complex mix of knowing it was wrong but not sure if they did something to bring that about. So that anger and confusion and also a real loss in it. You know, it's such a terrible loss when someone hits you in any way, shape or form or does anything to you to hurt you, leave a mark, injure you, put you in hospital, um, make you, you have to go to the doctor. It's a loss of friendship and it's a loss of trust and it's a loss of um dream for what you thought the relationship was going to be it's a very complex mix and it can take quite a while to unpack that and it's all very well for as a counsellor to say well you know he has no right to treat you like that but the thing is the effects of treating someone a woman like that um uh it's the emotional 
impact of that, that is the worst. It's like, what does that mean? Why does he hate me so much? You know, why does he think he can do that? What, that really hurt, you know, and women very rarely get to thoroughly talk about their physical abuse. When it comes to being a bystander, what do we struggle most with, with the physical abuse stuff? It can be really scary to be a bystander when there's physical abuse because um, if, you're, if you're sort of nearby or you come to hear about it, you really don't want that person to turn on you and that's fair. You don't want to create more trouble than is already happening but not to do anything is also allowing it to continue and so, and we, that's what we're trying to avoid is, is that we, we're all responsible to stop this. Like the psychopath said, I just know people won't do anything. So I do what I like. People, people won't do or say anything. So it might be saying simply something like, stop. That's not okay. I've, help is coming. I've called the police. Help is coming. Help is coming is a great deterrent. But it can take more than one of you. So if there's a few of you actually saying to one another, I think let's all say something. I don't want this to just be me. Let's all say something here. And when you all say something, when you all step in as a group, um, and that's the, you know, the new social rule, it shouldn't just be up to one of us, all of us, then that person that's doing the violating will most likely stop and will think again about doing it this isn't really, I can't get away with it like I used to. Do we worry that we might be putting the woman more at risk? Of course we do and we have to evaluate that and that's fair. We have to evaluate, is it going to be worse for her or not if I intervene? And there is no right or wrong there and we have to give ourselves slack for that and say, yeah, look, I really don't know. I want to do something I'm just not sure what to do. But at the same time, we have to do something that keeps us safe and it might just be calling out stop or help is coming or it might be talking to her later if you can like there's so many variations to this situation isn't there and saying you know um it's not okay and I want to help you by telling you where you can go to get some help like you can just talk to the victim if you're too afraid to intervene and talk to the person who's perpetrating it the talking to the victim at some stage and just say no one's ever got any right to treat you like that no matter what you did. And do you want some help? Do you want some help? Are you okay? And that is life-changing. I'd imagine with physical abuse, often this is something that we might not see it happening. Yeah. How else would we recognise that someone might be in a relationship where there is physical abuse? Their body could be sore and stiff. They could be covering themselves up. They could explain away marks and bruises. They could wear sunglasses when they don't need to because they've got a black eye. Um, they could be limping. Um, they could refer to it obliquely in a conversation because they don't know whether they can really talk about it or not. Um, and so, and it's about saying, about asking, are, are, are you, are you, have you been hurt? And can I help? A women have said to me when I started to realise how dangerous it was for me to to be treated like that, what it might elevate to, it might get worse, and that none of it's my fault no matter what, then they can their confusion reduces and then they can make plans and then they can decide what they want to do and they can 
um, they can feel a little bit liberated and a bit empowered and it contradicts that confusion, which is what keeps us, you know, we don't know what to do when we're confused. We can't make any plans. We don't know what to do. Let's make sure there is no confusion that physical abuse is against the law. While it might seem obvious... Is it possible that socially we're still dealing with the fallout from laws gone by? This podcast is called Rule of Thumb. It's just a saying, isn't it, that we use day to day? It refers to an old law that allowed a man to hit his wife with a stick so long as it was no thicker than his thumb. Hence, Rule of Thumb. Now, there's debate about whether thumbs were ever actually mentioned in any such law, but maybe moderate wife beatings were allowed. Not anymore. We'll get to the new rules in a moment, but I want to stick on the social stuff because socially, sometimes it's not that clear cut. Remember Dave, who we met in episodes one and two? Dave talked about how he'd lost friends over calling out misogynistic comments And here he talks about losing a job after he called out abusive behaviour and requested that that person not come into his workplace. Now, I don't pretend this is simple. The incident that sort of initially happened happened when this person was uh, drunk. And so I was just like, you know, at a place that's serving alcohol, just wasn't comfortable with the concept of it. And the fact that people that... um, you know, had been affected by this behaviour would likely be there. So, like, initially told, yep, nope, that's not a problem at all. But then we opened and then, you know, I was taken aside and like, oh, actually, we kind of, um, you know, his influence on the people that we want to come here is is pretty good and it was so long ago. Um, I don't think it's a problem. So, yeah, we're just going to, you know, let him in sort of thing. And it was like, you know, this whole big thing about, it didn't matter. It didn't matter because he just needed the social status of this well-connected person, you know, coming into the place and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, I voiced some concerns with that and within two weeks I was no longer there. So, What did you learn through that process? I mean, it sounds like there's a few things, a few things going on there. A lot the- to unpack, really, like in, in people's behaviours around that sort of thing, like... You know, whether it's it's like people don't really take it seriously. You know, I think people find it difficult to call out behaviours like that, you know, and it's especially like obviously for women really hard to talk about things like that because, you know, from what we kind of see just in the social sphere, like, you know, social media and newspapers and things like that, typically they don't get believed, you know, and it's always like the onus is on them to kind of, Um, you know, prove that this person is awful instead of just like, oh, why don't we just believe this person when they say something? And it just, that extends into other things as well. Like, and I'm pretty sure that business did believe me, but just didn't care, you know, like because because of the, you know, what, what the business would benefit from having that person there. It's really hard to not think about your own experiences or consider what you might do when we hear stories like this. And it is tricky when we find ourselves going, ooh, I don't know the full story, or if there aren't convictions, does that change things? One of the things we've learned through this podcast is that convictions can be hard to get. Even if there is a police family violence order in place, that's not a conviction. 
So how do people get convicted for physical assaults in family violence situations? Let's get back to the lawyers, Elise and Yvette. So with assault, what we're looking at is that someone has made contact with your body without your consent. So that's the general definition of assault. Is it different for family violence? And if it's a family violence situation, is the assault treated differently? Well, the criminal element of assault is the same, so that there has been contact, so the hitting, slapping, punching, kicking type contact without that person's consent. Um, It is a separate offence, though, under our Family Violence Act, and if it's prosecuted as a family violence offence, there can be additional penalties that are applied Mm -hmm. in in that circumstance. And the reason that's relevant, Penny, is because prior to 2004, it was what the court the, the court called uh, a mitigating factor if the assault happened in the home. So if you were attacked by your intimate partner at home, that was mitigatory, meaning that you got less, less of a sentence or you got less time if you were convicted. So if a stranger got you on the street, it's aggravating. But if you were assaulted in your home then you got less of a sentence. What's the, what's the justification of that? Well, the only justification that I can understand coming from that was that it was seen as something lesser if it happened in your private life in a private space. Because it's allowed. Because it's allowed and because I guess it was a hangover from, um, you know, women being the property of the men that they were with. And you said 2004 it changed? 2004 it changed. And the other feature of that was it also became aggravating if children were present at the time of the assault. Where does somebody get charged for this stuff? Where, where, where do these proceedings go? Is it in the family court? Is it in the criminal court? How does it, how does it happen? How it all intersects is really tricky, Penny. Um, and that is something that a lot of our clients struggle with as well. We have different jurisdictions for different issues. So if you're in the family court and you're dealing with your property settlement or where the kids are going to live, that's one jurisdiction. If someone has is being charged with an offence because they have assaulted you, that is a state-based jurisdiction. So they're likely going to be in the magistrate's court or possibly the Supreme Court within Tasmania, where we are at the moment. Um, but they can intersect. So if someone's been found guilty in one jurisdiction, that can be taken as fact and provided to the court in another jurisdiction in some circumstances. One of the things that that this does raise is that there needs to be some risk assessment system that sits across both the state jurisdiction and the federal jurisdiction that prioritises safety of women and children. And that's something that the Women's Legal Service Association nationally has been advocating for. I I preface this by saying it seems a bit obvious to ask, but there's nothing really obvious about this stuff anymore and that's certainly what I'm learning. What can we look out for? What are signs of that, that, that there is physical abuse or perhaps that there could be physical abuse about to start in a relationship? A really great predictor of the physical abuse, especially if there hasn't been any yet, are those elements of coercive control that we have touched on in in other episodes. Have you got any 
tips, I guess, from your experience, because you are people who have these types of conversations all the time, about how we have that first conversation with someone, even if it is something obvious like a bruise and even if the excuse is coming up of I fell over or I ran into something, how, how do we do that well? I'm thinking back to a client that I had a little while ago who was in a situation where um, she'd been the victim of a non-fatal strangulation and those conversations are really hard and um, I talked to her about what the law was but then we delved a little bit deeper into um, the impact that that might have been having on the children who were present, the risk that was associated with an act like that, um, the support mechanisms that she might have needed to make a decision to leave. She hadn't made a decision to leave yet and I think that you have to give people time to come to that on their own as well, so that's part of it as well. What are some things that we can do to support women so when that time is right they are more prepared um, with whatever they might need to be able to leave? I think being linked into support services, and by that I mean counselling support services, so that women have got a safety plan in place, they've got a whole plan of what their life's going to look like moving forward, because realistically, Penny, the time that women leave is the time that they're most likely to be killed. And so we have a heightened responsibility at that time to ensure uh, that women have that plan in place. And it's not just a physical plan about how they're going to remove themselves from the situation. It's also being, you know, having some, being emotionally equipped to actually deal with the separation as well, because often the behaviour is going to escalate during that period. To get to the really practical stuff, what do women need to have with them? Look, what um, I'd encourage people um, to be doing is to try and, if they can, hold back a little bit of money to have a bit of a, a savings buffer, uh, which one of their friends, again, as a bystander, you might offer to hold some money. And the other thing might be that things of sentimental value, they might be um, family heirlooms, it might be a cup and saucer from your great-grandmother, uh, photos, all of those things, passports uh, are another thing um, and it might even be uh, written down numbers on your mobile phone with all your contacts in it, that all of those things that might be of sentimental value, not necessarily of financial value, are uh, in a box at somebody's house in their garage. Recently I heard um, of a woman who had started to stockpile um, furniture at a friend's place. So they'd been going out op shopping together, which is another great bystander action, so that when she left, she had some furniture, so that her and her children weren't left with with no um, with no furniture when they left. So maybe being an active bystander is not about stopping that punch from landing on that day, but it's helping by keeping a box of stuff at your house. It's offering a bed or a key to the shack. It's getting to know your neighbours and even setting up a code that when the light in the front bedroom is left on, call the police. It's listening. It's believing. It's listening to this podcast series and sharing it with your friends, with your family, at your workplace, and then putting plans into place so that your team is ready to support someone. It's knowing how to diffuse a conversation when there is abusive behaviour, 
by rolling your eyes, not laughing, shaking your head or making a lighthearted comment to move the conversation on. It's checking in and supporting the target of abuse. It's calling out disrespectful behaviour such as purposely changing the topic or talking to the disrespectful person in private to explain appropriate behaviour in the workplace. And it's reporting it to management or other incident reporting systems or in public if the behaviour is violent or threatening, calling the police. And Deborah Thompson reminds us that it's not always going to be obvious or easy. For most people, like myself, I couldn't bring myself to talk about the uh, violence. I kept it secret for 17 years um, from my family even, and there were instances where I couldn't go to work for a week and a half. Um, my mother came down for a visit, and I said to her, I'd fallen down the stairs. Now, I've continued that line. Anyone, any friend asking another friend about the abuse will probably get a lot of excuses. Um, but if you just sort of keep digging and just saying, I feel that what you're saying to me doesn't sound quite right. Um, I'm ready to listen. I'm ready to hear whatever you have to say. I won't judge you and I will believe you. Words like that are really powerful and it might just open someone up. But if you have that inkling, you're probably right. So here we are at the end of season two of Rule of Thumb. Perhaps it's the start of more bystander action. Or just have a conversation about what you've heard. That's enough. To the people who've made this season happen, the endless hours from the lawyers at the Women's Legal Service Tasmania and their patience with me as I tried to decomplicate the law, thank you. Thank you to my team at Healthy Tasmania, to Hayden and Lucy, who've kept me going and listened. Thank you to Torna Pittman. We can hear the clarity that you have about family violence and bystander action. And to the men and women who spoke about their experiences, from Dave to Brad to Dad to Deb, and to the women whose voices we had to change. Seriously, thank you. And I want to do the live version of the thank you to the funders, the Tasmanian Government's Department of Communities, as part of the COVID-19 family violence response. And there's also another season, season one. If you've missed it, go back and listen. My name is Penny Terry. You've been listening to Rule of Thumb. It's a podcast for the Women's Legal Service Tasmania. Tasmania.